you got a Bible, open to Luke chapter 2. is where we're going to be for our message this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. This is the same text that Stanley was out of last week, but it's not the same message. Um, as he was preaching last week, something struck me in this text that I wanted to develop and share with you this morning. Um, Stanley did a great job unpacking this text last week, and so I called him earlier in the week and said, hey man, I'm not re-preaching your message, um, but there's something that hit me that I think I want to share with our people next weekend. And so we're going to read there, verses 25 to 35, the little context before we read it. It takes place roughly about 40 days after Jesus is born. So Jesus is born, the angels show up in the fields, they announce it to the shepherds. Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, and then as customary to the law, that he's brought into the temple 40 days after his birth and he is presented as it is custom to present every firstborn male there in the temple as holy unto the Lord set apart for him and his purposes and service and so that's what Jesus' parents are doing Mary and Joseph are bringing him to the temple and they encounter this man named Simeon in the temple and we pick up the story in Luke chapter 2 in verse 25 and we'll read together down through verse 35 as, you, as we read it it'll be on the screen behind me as well it says Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now listen, some of you are painfully aware of the fact that the runway for Christmas is running out. Right This week, as it approaches, it's on the horizon. It gets closer and closer and closer every moment. And so for some of you, who that uh, creates a great deal of anxiety in your hearts because you're procrastinators. Got any procrastinators in the room? Right? We were going to start a support group for you, but it's not going to start till the night before. Okay? Um, but your procrastinators, it creates a lot of anxiety because you still have preparations to make and you still have gifts to purchase and gifts to wrap and stockings to fill and houses to clean and meals to cook. And you still have family to receive and welcome. Man, that, that's enough to make anybody a little bit anxious, right? Uh, but as, as the runway for Christmas begins to run out, for some of us in the room, it's a very hectic time. Uh, you feel like you're being torn in seven different directions because you've got this side of the family and this side of the family and this side of the family. Right? You've got uh, folks who are traveling in from town. You've got to go see people and travel to where they are. You've got all the preparations that are still hanging out there, loose ends to be tied up. It can be a very hectic time. But listen, for our kids... And for your, some of you, for your grandkids, like every, almost every child, you can see it in their eyes. It is not a hectic time, but a very hopeful one. It's a very hopeful one because their eyes are filled with expectation. I can see it in my kids' eyes as we wrapped presents yesterday and put them under the tree. Although none of them were for them, it still created expectation and this sense of hope of what they might receive in eight short days because they're hoping for more, right? They're hoping for more. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. That's what, in fact, what I've titled this message, I've titled it, Hoping for More. 
Some of you have heard me say this before. You've heard me say that you can live without a whole lot of things, but you cannot live without hope. You cannot live without hope. And here's why. Because hope envisions a tomorrow that is different and better than today. That's what hope does. It looks into the future and it says, I see a tomorrow, I see a future that is different and better than the present And yet in our day, it can be real easy to lose hope. Hope can feel like sand just slipping through your fingers at times. Particularly whenever you turn on the national media and you tune in to what's going on around our nation. Over the last several months, it seems like the tomorrow is not getting better, but it's getting worse. Whenever you see reports, repeated reports on television or on social media or on print media, if you still get a newspaper, right? But you see these reports of consistent time after time, you see them being released of sexual misconduct, whether it be in the entertainment industry or whether it be in the political arena or whether it be in corporate America. And the way folks are viewed as a commodity, not very compassionately. It's easy to lose hope whenever you look at the ethnic and racial tensions that exist within our nation. Whenever you look at people who are fleeing very war-torn, distraught places on our globe, looking for asylum and refuge somewhere, and all of the difficulties that presents and all the challenges that it creates and the political tension that arises from it, of will we receive them? Where will we receive them? Where will they stay? How can we bring them in if they might threaten our safety and security? There's all kinds of tensions around ethnicity and there's tensions around race that continue to boil to the surface within our nation as people of different skin colors have tensions with issues of authority, sometimes with authority in the way that it's exercised. Right? And it creates challenges and it's easy for hope to slip through our fingers as well when we look in our community and we see the inequities that exist as you see those at the very top who have much and those who are at the very bottom who have nothing. And you see the inequities in our community but also times you lose hope when you reach an impasse in your own life, right? You ever been tra- kind of traveling down the path and all of a sudden you reach a place, a point in the journey and you're like... I don't know which way to go. I don't know whether to make a hard right, to make a hard left, to keep going straight, to stay where I am, to turn around and go back, or to blaze a new trail. I don't know. And sometimes whenever it's hard to see the future and what it's, it's, you, it's hope begins to slip through your fingers. And other times it's, it's hope begins to slip through your fingers when you look in the mirror and you go, man, you know what? There's a lot of impurities in my own soul. Why have I not put this to death yet? Why does this sin continue to be hindering me? Why does it still feel like a chain shackled around my ankle that I'm dragging behind me? It's easy to lose hope. But on the flip side of that coin, I want you to know something. Hope is powerful because hope can envision a tomorrow that is different and better than today. It has a power to it, doesn't it? It's incredibly powerful. Hope can heal a marriage because it can see a tomorrow that is different and better than today. Hope can restore relationships and bind up wounds. Hope has the capacity to give you empowerment to endure really difficult and hard seasons of life, but it can also create excitement as you look out on the horizon and envision what tomorrow could be. Hope has a capacity to give you vision, but also raise you to action. It's incredibly powerful. And because it's incredibly powerful, it's important that we understand what it is what it does, and how it grows. That's what I want to see in this text this morning. What is it? What is hope? How, what does it do? Right? Because hope for us, oftentimes in this time of the year, we tend to think of it as a very soft, sweet sentiment, right? right? It kind of warms our heart. 
But in reality, hope has the power and capacity to change your heart. So what is it? What does it do? And how does it grow? All right, we learn those three things at least in this text. And the first one is this. What is it? Hope is an expectant and active waiting. It's an expectant and active waiting. Listen, the language the Bible uses when it speaks of hope, right? It uses this synonymously. When in the Bible, to hope is to wait and to wait is to hope. Those are synonymous throughout the scriptures. If you look in verse 25, when it describes Simeon, it says that he was a man who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was expecting the consolation of Israel. He was hoping for the consolation of Israel. Those are all synonymous terms used interchangeably throughout the Bible. To hope is to wait, and to wait is to hope. Right? But hope in the Bible is not an uncertain waiting, but it's an expectant waiting. It's a certain, there's a certainty behind it. I can remember as a child, as we approached Christmas season, every year we would receive, it was before the internet, some of you are having a hard time imagining that, before the days of the internet, before the days of smartphones where you could just pull up whatever you want and access any information anywhere, but we actually received stuff in the mail that we looked at. And so one of the things that we got in the mail was this thing called a wish book. It was from Sears, right? And I can remember my brother and I opening up the wish book and we would turn page after page and we would dog ear pages, we would highlight things, we'd circle them, we'd cut them out and create a timeline poster board for our parents to put on display in the living room right in front of the Christmas tree as we approached the Christmas season, right? Because we were wishing for all of these things. We had no reasonable expectation we were actually going to receive any of those things, but we were wishing for them. But that is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking, Biblical hope is waiting. It's the difference between the wish book and the waiting room. I have another experience as a child. I can remember getting sick at times and having to go to the doctor. And when I'd go to the doctor, we'd go check in and we'd have a little place, have a seat in what was called the waiting room. Right? Because on the other side of those doors, we were waiting for something, weren't we? <laughs> Sometimes we're waiting for him to stick you with a needle. I was waiting for like, the whole office to come hold me down so that they could actually poke me with that thing. Because right? I was terrified of them. But you were waiting. You knew on the other side of those doors somebody was going to be able to help you heal. Right? And that is the biblical sense of hope. That it's not wishing for something. It's waiting for something. It's expectant and certain. But it's also active. It's also active. You see, um, one of the clearest places you can see this connection between hope, hoping and waiting is in Romans chapter 8. Where the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with endurance. But we wait. Now listen, although hope is is waiting with patience, it is not waiting in passivity. There's a difference between those two things. Because hope biblically is waiting actively. It's an active waiting. Let me try and break it down for you this way. If you're at work, right, and you're hoping for a promotion, you're waiting for a promotion, right? You're also working for a promotion. There's activity involved in that, isn't there? If your boss walks by your door and he peeks into your office and your feet are propped up on your desk and you got a bag of chips in your, in, in your lap and there's like crumbs all over your collar right here and you got your computer up and one screen, like you have the two dual screens, one's got Netflix and the other has YouTube and you're just perusing videos all day long, your boss doesn't walk by and go, man, you've got what it takes. We're going to elevate you to the top. You're going to be the next CEO here, right? That's not how promotions work. If you're hoping for a promotion and waiting for a promotion, you're also working towards that, aren't you? 
Right? The same thing is true students. Listen, if you're hoping to graduate one day, anybody hoping to graduate one day? You all should raise your hand right now. Right? You're hoping to graduate one day, right? You're hoping to walk across that stage and shake the president of your institution's hand or the principal there at your high school and they're going to put another piece of paper in your hand that you or your parents or you're going to pay back one day, right? You've, you've paid for this little piece of paper and your education. And so you walk across the stage, shake their hand, and you graduate. But listen, if you're hoping to graduate, if you're waiting to graduate, you're also working to graduate, aren't you? Right? You don't just kick your feet up and say, I'm just going to, man, it's going to happen. I trust God. I'm letting go and letting God take care of this, right? No, you're, you're working for it, aren't you? Right? You're taking exams. You're studying. You're writing papers. You're doing group projects. There's activity involved in that waiting. And that's what the Bible means when it says hope. Hope is an expectant, a certain waiting. I know something's coming, but it also shapes activity here and now in the present. If you look at Simeon, he was a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for something. Because hope is always waiting. But listen, what does hope do? Second thing I want to show you this is hope, this is what hope does in a life. Right? If you look at Simeon's life, you see that it says that he was a man who was righteous and devout, comma, waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, the way that he lived in the present was shaped by what he was looking forward to in the future. Do you see that? There's a connection there. Because hope in the life of a believer, biblical hope, always, listen, it always irrigates holiness in your life. It always irrigates holiness. Now, for those of you who were asleep in third grade science class or didn't grow up on a farm, right, irrigation is the process by which water is channeled from a point of origination to a point of termination or application, right? And so you take water from one location and you channel it to another in order to promote growth and flourishing and to nourish the ground in another location. So whether it's an irrigation canal that's cut off of a main river channel or off of a reservoir, it channels water from one location, sometimes miles away, to be used to irrigate the ground in another location to make it fertile and fruitful and flourish. That's what irrigation is. And listen, I want you to know something, that a, a, a life that is well watered with hope promotes growth in holiness. That's what happens. Because as you're looking forward to the future, it's shaping your life in the present. Look at Simeon's description. He was a righteous and devout man, waiting. Hope in the, for the future was shaping his life in the present. The word righteous there means this. It means that he was upright, that he kept the commands of God, that he was virtuous. So in his conduct, there was a moral righteousness about his life and the way that he lived and the way that he interacted with people and the way that he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and the way that he loved his neighbor as himself, that he kept the commands of God. But in addition, he's described as a man who was devout. That word devout literally means this. It means that he was cautious and careful in his lifestyle and his conduct to pass everything that he did through the lens of his devotion to God. Right? And so he wasn't just this legalist who was jumping through hoops and, 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 and building a sense of morality in his life. Rather, he had a sincere love and passion for God, a devotion to God, and everything that he did was passed through that lens of his devotion. So you might say it very simply this. Simeon was a man who kept the commands of God and was devoted to the cause of God. 
Both and. And, those, and. and in the Bible, those are the two sides of the coin called holiness. That you keep the commands of God and that you are devoted to the cause of God. In the Bible, to be holy means that you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and you set your hands to work in God's world. It's both of those things. And hope irrigates that. It fuels that. It feeds that. As you look forward to the future, and it does it in two ways. Let me show them to you in the text. First of all, our hope will fuel your sanctification. It will fuel your sanctification. Listen, that word sanctification is a big 25-cent theological term that basically means this, the process of change in your life. Of your growth in holiness, of your maturity in Christ-likeness, that you become, you look and think more like Jesus tomorrow than you did today and more today than you did yesterday. Right? There's a, there's a righteousness in which Simeon, Simeon possesses because he was hoping And the same is true for us. An old preacher by the name of Thomas Watson said years ago, listen to what he said about sanctification. He said, sanctification, the process of change, the process of growth in your life or maturation, he said, is heaven begun in the soul? And here's what he means by that. What will be fully and finally one day in your life, out here in heaven, in 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 the presence of God, unfiltered, the radiant beauty of Jesus whenever you're staring in his face, what will be fully and finally true about you one day has begun in part and process today. Right. So what will be true one day has begun in part and process today. And then he goes on to talk about sanctification. Listen to what else he says. I think it's beautiful. He says, sanctification and glory differ only in degree. Sanctification is glory in the seed, and glory is sanctification in the flower. Have you ever planted flowers in your backyard? Most of us probably go to a nursery and we pick up a pot, right, that already has flowers blooming in it and they're beautiful, and we go and we dig a hole and we shove that thing down there. We turn on our sprinkler system and we walk away, right? But if you've ever planted a flower from seed, it's a little bit of a different process. Right? You take the seed out of the packet and you put it in some soil. Remember, remember that little styrofoam cup again in third grade science class? Right? You put the seed in the soil, you press it down, you water it, you put it on the windowsill, you let light come in to warm the soil and the seed begins to germinate. Right? And as the seed germinates, it begins to push up through the, the, the top layer of that soil and you begin to see these little green sprouts starting to come up. And then as the green sprout grows and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it begins to branch off and there's leaves that begin to branch off the sides. The stem gets more solid and stable and secure and it begins to set out branches. And as those branches grow and the plant matures toward its full maturity, what eventually it does is it sets buds on the end of those branches and leaves. And then when the plant reaches maturity, it begins to blossom and bloom into a beautiful flower. And Watson says that's exactly what sanctification is in your life. It's heaven, what will be then and there, begun in the soul, here and now. What you will be fully and finally one day, begun in your heart and life and soul today. It's the seed of heaven planted in your soul that grows, as it germinates, it begins to grow and spread throughout your life. 
And as you grow and mature from one degree of glory to another, as you continue to behold the face of Jesus, and you grow in Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another, and you mature and mature and mature, until one day you're in the presence of Jesus, where that bud has set and the blossom has opened, and there is a flower that will be radiant and beautiful for all of eternity. It will never wither, it will never fade, it will never wilt. He says that's what the process is like of change and sanctification. And listen, hope is the water of heaven. Hope is the water of heaven that irrigates that seed. That's what hope is. That's how powerful hope is. Let me show you to you in a couple of ways. One, you're like, how does this work? Here's how it works. Right? Hope in your life. Listen, if, if the only way that you fight against sin, right, because when that flower opens one day, your fight against sin is over. Anybody looking forward to that day? Forward to that day when your thoughts are just automatically captivated by Jesus and you don't have to take them captive to him. I'm looking forward to that day. Right? But until that day, we're thinking about what's coming in the future and it's irrigating what's happening in the present as what's coming in the future shapes the way that we live. And I thought about a couple of aspects of life that it does that. You, you take any aspect of life and run it through this filter. But two of them I want to talk to you about this morning. One is, the first one is greed and covetousness. I know that we struggle this time of the year in particular, right? There, there's, there's all kinds of advertisements and everything that would entice you to say, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. How do you put greed and covetousness to death in your life? Right? One way of doing it is to say you've got to look back at the cross and see all that God has graciously given you in Jesus Christ. That he has come and lived in your place. He has come and died in your place. He left the riches of heaven and he came to the earth in order that you might now have the, the riches of, of, of a relationship with God. And you can look back at the cross and say that's how you put greed and covetousness to death in your life. But listen, if you only do that, if that's all you do, it will not be powerful enough to wrest your heart away from greed. Because here's what else you have to do. You have to look forward. You have to look forward. In the book of Romans in chapter eight, Paul speaks of the fact that you and I, if you're in Christ, then you're an heir with God, co-heirs with Christ. And if you're an heir of God, if you're a son or daughter of his, there is an inheritance that's coming. Do you know that? There's an inheritance that is yours in Christ that you will receive one day. And as you look forward to that day, it begins to pry the, the cold, slimy fingers of greed off of your heart because you say, I don't have to have everything here and now because it's coming then and there in all of its fullness. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm rejoicing in that. I'm hoping for that. I'm waiting for that. See, listen, church, there's, if you're in Christ, you have an inheritance waiting for you that is better than 40 acres with a farmhouse decorated by Chip and Joanna. All right? It's better. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of the fact that you have an inheritance that's better than whatever is left over in the retirement accounts of your parents whenever they pass. It's better than that. See, to put greed and covetousness to death in your life, you have to have hope because it fuels your sanctification. Also, lust. For those of you who wrestle with lustful thoughts and immoral imaginations, 
Listen, it's one thing to look back at the bloody body of Jesus and say, he took that for me and all of the imagination and the immorality that, and the lust that I've engaged in, the way that my heart longs for that, the way that my mind dreams of that. It's one thing to look back and say, this is what he did. It's another thing to look forward and say, there's a day that's coming in which he will return on a white horse and he will be surrounded by uh, the, the saints of God on horses and their robes will be arrayed in fine linen, pure, absolutely pure. And he's coming back to make you pure one day, fully and fine. If you're waiting for that, you're longing for that, you're looking for that, then you arm yourself with that hope and you fight sin now in the present Right? Think of this, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, future tense, they shall see who? God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, one of the things that will wrest your heart away from immorality and the, that imagination and the lust of your heart is this, is to know that there's a better tomorrow, right, than today. And as you think of that better tomorrow and as you dream of that better tomorrow, then you're taking steps towards that by saying that what I'm entertaining in my mind today will either promote intimacy with God and seeing him face to face in all of his beauty or it will hinder that. It will do one of the, one of the two. There is nothing that is neutral. You with me? There's nothing that is neutral. So do you, do, you, do you really look forward and say, I believe that intimacy with God, seeing him face to face, no longer as in a mirror that's dimly lit, as Paul talks about in Corinthians, but seeing him in all of his fullness, that that is more satisfying, that tastes better, that is more fulfilling than anything I can lay my eyes on here and now. See, hope will pull you forward in that. It will fuel your sanctification. But not only does hope fuel sanctification, it also fuels your service. It also fuels service. Consider Simeon's not only a righteous man, but he's a devout man, remember? He's devoted to God's cause. Everything in his life is filtered through his sincere love for God. And as he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's also serving He's, there's an action and his activity in his life as he's about God's mission, about God's cause. You see, what hope, the biblical language of hope, it doesn't say, I, I, you know what? I wish things would get better. Some of us look around our culture, our community, and even in this church and say, I wish things were different. That is not the language of hope. Hope waits for things to get better by working towards them being better. You know that? That's what hope does. See, on August, I'm going to give you an illustration, on August 28, 1963, a man by the name that you all know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he delivered what was perhaps the keynote address of the entire civil rights movement. Perhaps one of the most powerful speeches delivered in the entire 20th century in America. And you know it as his I Have a Dream speech. As he gets toward the end of that speech, of that address, I want you to hear what he says. He says, and even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. A dream that is deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out its true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 
And then he goes on to tell, tell us what that would look like in different places throughout the states. He says, I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And then listen to what he says. I have a dream that down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, that one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. The crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, which is a quote directly from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. And then he says, this is our hope. And this is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that one day we will be free. It's a beautiful speech, compelling. It's saturated with Old Testament language. It is dripping with hope. But listen, do you know where that came from? It came from a man who was waiting for a a future, a tomorrow that was different and better than today. It was born, the whole civil rights movement was born out of hope. And so the speeches that were delivered were delivered out of hope. The marches that were held were held out of hope. The beatings that were taken were taken out of hope. The nonviolent resistance that was issued was done out of hope. Because hope is not passive, it is active. It's waiting for things to change, but also working for them to change. It wasn't just talk it was service and it was all born out of hope you're like man that is pretty high and lofty last week or week and a half ago now I met a young man in South Africa and he had just graduated university and as he 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 was thinking about what he was going to do with the rest of his life Right? He was kind of thinking down the corridors of time and thinking about what lie ahead for him. And he said, you know, initially I thought I would just kind of you know, jump on the treadmill and I would work through the corporate ladder and I would, I would rise in the corporate ladder and I would make money and people would be, my parents would be proud of me and I would be a success story. And he was a sharp, sharp young man. And he said, but as I was processing through that, through this campus outreach ministry that I had gotten connected into, as I was processing through that, he said, God struck me with this thought, why would you do that when you could do this? 
Why would you give your life to climbing a ladder and excelling in the corporate world to make a bunch of money to pad your accounts and retire comfortably when I can give my life to the cause of Christ and discipleship and evangelism and raising up the next generation of leaders who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth? And so he said, I started raising money. <laughs> I didn't go take a job. I started trying to make one. I started going ra- I went and raised money. And I'm still in the process of raising money. And it's hard and it's difficult. But the, that young man is pursuing that dream because he has hope that God might use him. He has a picture of a future that is for his continent, for his nation, that is different and better than today. And so he serves faithfully. See, the language of hope doesn't say, I just, Dr. King didn't kick back his feet and say, I just wish things would get better in our country. He had hope that they would and he worked towards it. And the same is true for you. Listen, if you, you don't, you can't, the language of hope doesn't say, I wish things would get better in my family. I just wish they would get better in my family, but it works towards it. Right? Husbands and wives, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, they work towards unity and harmony. It doesn't say, I wish things would get better. It works towards it. You don't look at the community and say, I wish things would get better around us. You work towards that. You don't look at this church and say, I just wish this church would get better in some areas. No, what you do, the language of hope says, I see a future that is different and better than today. And so in the present, I roll up my sleeves and I put my hands to the task and I begin to plow some ground. I begin to make some investments. I begin to serve in some areas. That's what hope does because it fuels service. Now listen, let me close with this. How does hope grow? Two things I'm going to leave you with. The first one is this. Because, it, it, listen, if hope is just like a, 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 a trickle of water running downhill in your life, right, you're probably, you probably feel like it's just running right through your hands. But how does it become a raging stream in your life? And two things that we learn in this text. And the first one is this. You've got to fill your mind with promises. You have to fill your mind with promises. Look, in this, in this text, what Simeon is waiting for is not wishful thinking, but he's waiting on a promise that God made. He's waiting on a promise. When he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's waiting for his people to be comforted. He's waiting for his people to be encouraged. He's waiting for God to stay his hand of discipline and judgment and for the nation to flourish once again. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting on a promise that God had made. And it's a promise that God made way back in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40 through 66. And for the sake of time this morning, I'm only going to read you two texts out of, that, out, of, out of that long string. We could read 10 or 12 of them. But here's two. One, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort her, why? Because my days of discipline are coming to an end. You have rebelled and my hand has been against you. Nations have risen up to overthrow and oppress you. You've been occupied them, but that time is coming to an end, God says, so comfort my people, console my people, encourage my people, because at that time of discipline is coming to a close. And then in Isaiah 66, 12 to 14, it says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. And one whom his mother 
as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your, ha- your bones shall flourish like grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. This is what God says. He says, the time's coming when you're gonna be like a little kid, like a little infant sitting on my lap just bouncing and giggling and laughing. Because you're going to be rejoicing, you'll be flourishing. There'll be peace running through the heart of my people like a river. And you will see that these nations that have risen up to oppress you, that I will overthrow them, my indignation will be against them, I will drive them out. Comfort, comfort my people. And so when you read in Luke chapter 2 that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's waiting for God to deliver on a promise that he had made centuries before. He's not waiting in a vacuum. He's waiting for God, for, 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 for what God has promised to come to pass. That's what he's waiting on. And one of the ways to turn that trickle of hope in your life into a torrential stream that is overflowing its banks is to begin to fill your mind with promises. Promises that God has made. Because we're told in the book of Second Corinthians in chapter one that all of God's promises are yes and amen. That he's faithful to fulfill everything that he's promised. And so maybe if you're struggling today and like your prayer life is withered up because there's no hope, there's no hope in your life, maybe you would fill your mind with this promise from Psalm 145, verses 18 and 19 that says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and also hears their cry and saves them. Maybe you'd fill your mind with that promise and it would drive you to your knees in hope as you ask God and plead with God that tomorrow in your family, tomorrow in this community, that tomorrow in this church would be a tomorrow that is different and better than today because there's hope. And you fill your mind with that promise that God will answer, that he hears the cries of his people. Maybe if there's hope is withering in your life and you feel like you're under the weight of God's discipline and judgment on account of sin, that you would fill your mind with the promise of forgiveness. A promise of forgiveness like the one in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 9. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. See, the promise of God is that if you come back to him, if you return to him, if you will be gathered under his wings as his children, that he will not turn his face from you but towards you and reestablish intimacy with you in relationship. Maybe if you're struggling and you feel like hope is drying up and your, and your service is withering on account of it, being a part of God's mission and his agenda in this community and across the ends, to the ends of the earth. Maybe you would fill your mind with promises like Malachi 1.11, where God promises or, or declares his intention to bless the nations when he says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God's desire to bless the nations through his people. 
I don't know what promises you need to fill your mind with this morning, but listen, if you will fill your mind with them and then pray them back to God and believe them, all of a sudden that trickle in the stream of hope in your life will begin to fill. Fill your mind with promises. And then finally, you need to fix your eyes on a person. You need to fix your eyes on a person. That text in 2 Corinthians 2 where all God's promises are yes and amen, they're yes and amen in a person. In Jesus Christ. See, what Simeon had been waiting for walked into the temple that day with a mom and dad carrying him to present him as was customary to the law. And when Simeon laid his eyes on the infant Jesus, listen to what he says. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What you promised has been fulfilled. He is here. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. See, Simeon says, God, what you've promised is coming to pass according to your word, and it's coming to pass in a person, in this infant that's here to be dedicated and presented at the temple. And when he lays eyes on Jesus, he says, this God is your salvation. This is your deliverance. This is your redeemer. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one in whom all of our hope resides. This is him. And listen, church, I want you to know in this season of Advent that you're still waiting for him. You haven't seen him in all of his fullness, but you will one day. And so we're still waiting for him. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And as you fix your eyes on him, as the author of Hebrews says, the the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He served you to the very end. He endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. If you fix your eyes on him, it will flood your heart with hope. I'll close with this story. A couple of years ago, we were teaching my daughter to pray. Very simple prayers. I, was, I remember laying in bed with her one night and we were praying together and we just prayed these real simple prayers. God, thank you so much for my mommy and my daddy and for the roof over my head and for the food in my belly. Right, real simple prayers for a two-year-old. And thank you most of all for Jesus. And one night as we prayed that prayer, we were laying in bed and she looked at me through these, like sucking her thumb with her blanket, you know, through these little innocent two-year-old eyes and she said, Daddy, where is Jesus? And I said, well, baby, he is in heaven with his daddy. She said, I want to see Jesus. I said, baby, I do too. And I said, one day we will. Because the Bible says one day that the sky is going to part and Jesus is going to come back on a white horse. And when he comes back on a white horse, he's going to make everything that is sad to come untrue. Everything that is broken, he's going to mend and fix. Everything that is falling apart, he will put back together. Everything, he'll fix everything. And she looks at me, and with all the theological astuteness of a a two and a half year old, she says, Daddy, I want Jesus to take me on a hayride behind his horse. (laughs) She was... And she understood something at that moment. That what she was waiting for was not just a bunch of principles to be applied in life. She was waiting for a person. And if you will fix your eyes on him this holiday season, this Christmas, your heart will flood with hope. 
if you'll fill your mind with his promises, your heart will flood with hope. And all of a sudden, your hands will be strengthened to service. And you'll fight against sin with a renewed vigor and energy as you look forward to a future that is better and different than the present. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for hope. We thank you for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams, as the old song says, that it's in him, in the little town of Bethlehem, where all the hopes and fears of all the years are met. That in him you dispel our fears and bid them away, and in him you fulfill all of our hopes and dreams. And so just like Simeon, may we lay eyes upon your son with the eyes of faith. Even though he saw him with the eyes of his natural eyes, God, may we see him with spiritual eyes today. May we fix our eyes on him. May that flood our hearts with hope. May we fill our minds with, his pro- with your promises. May that flood our heart with hope. That our hands might be strengthened. That our hearts might have a new resolve to fight sin and engage in service. God, that if we have, have just a trickle in the stream, in the, in the irrigation canal of hope right now, God, that it would flood over its banks and fill our lives. That we might be a people that is useful in your service. That we might be righteous and devout. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.